Chapter Thirteen of A Woman's Life by Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. Chapter Thirteen. After a two hours' drive, the gig drew up before a little brick house standing by the high road in the middle of an orchard planted with pear trees. Four lattice-work arbors covered with honeysuckle and clematis stood at the four corners of the garden which was planted with vegetables, and laid out in little beds with narrow paths bordered with fruit-trees running between them. And both garden and orchard were entirely surrounded by a thick-set hedge, which divided them from a field belonging to the next farm. About thirty yards lower down the road was a forge, and that was the only dwelling within a mile. All around lay fields and plains, with farms scattered here and there, half hidden by the four double rows of big trees which surrounded them. Jeanne wanted to rest as soon as they arrived, but Rosalie, wishing to keep her from thinking, would not let her do so. The carpenter from Gauderville had come to help them put the place in order, and they all began to arrange the furniture which was already there, without waiting for the last cartload which was coming on. The arrangement of the rooms took a long time, for everyone's ideas and opinions had to be consulted, and then the cart from Le Peuple arrived and had to be unloaded in the rain. When night fell, the house was in a state of utter disorder, and all the rooms were full of things piled anyhow, one on top of the other. Jeanne was tired out and fell asleep as soon as her head touched the pillow. The next few days there was so much to do that she had no time to fret. In fact, she even found a certain pleasure in making her new home pretty, for all the time she was working she thought that her son would one day come and live there. The tapestry from her bedroom at Les Peuples was hung in the dining-room, which was also to serve as drawing-room, and Jeanne took especial pains over the arrangement of one of the rooms on the first floor, which in her own mind she had already named Poulet's room. She was to have the other one on that floor, and Rosalie was to sleep upstairs next to the box-room. The little house thus tastefully arranged looked pretty when it was all finished, and at first Jeanne was pleased with it, though she was haunted by the feeling that there was something missing, though she could not tell what. One morning a clerk came over from the attorney at Fécamp, with the three thousand six hundred francs, the price at which an upholsterer had valued the furniture left at Les Peuples. Jeanne felt a thrill of pleasure as she took the money, for she had not expected to get so much, and as soon as the man had gone, she put on her hat and hurried off to Gauderville to send Paul this unlooked-for sum as quickly as possible. But as she was hastening along the road, she met Rosalie coming back from market. The maid suspected that something had happened, though she did not at once guess the truth. She soon found it out, however, for Jeanne could not hide anything from her, and placing her basket on the ground to give way to her wrath at her ease, she put her hands on her hips and scolded Jeanne at the top of her voice, then she took hold of her mistress with her right hand and her basket with her left, and walked on again towards the house in a great passion. As soon as they were indoors, Rosalie ordered the money to be given into her care, and Jeanne gave it her, with the exception of six hundred francs which she said nothing about. But this trick was soon detected, and Jeanne had to give it all up. However, Rosalie consented to these odd hundreds being sent to the young man, who in a few days wrote to thank his mother for the money. "'It was a most welcome present, mother dear,' he said, "'for we were reduced to utter want.' Time went on, but Jeanne could not get accustomed to her new home. It seemed as if she could not breathe freely at Botteville, and she felt more alone and forsaken than ever. 
she would often walk as far as the village of Vernuil and come back through Trois-Mères. But as soon as she was home, she started up to go out again, as if she had forgotten to go to the very place to which she had meant to walk. The same thing happened time after time, and she could not understand where it was she longed to go. One evening, however, she unconsciously uttered a sentence which at once revealed to her the secret of her restlessness. Oh, how I long to see the ocean, she said as she sat down to dinner. The sea, that was what she missed. The sea with its salt breezes, its never-ceasing roar, its tempests, its strong odours. The sea near which she had lived for five-and-twenty years, which had always felt near her, and which, unconsciously, she had come to love like a human being. Massacre, too, was very uneasy. The very evening of his arrival at the new house, he had installed himself under the kitchen dresser, and no one could get him to move out. There he lay all day long, never stirring except to turn himself over with a smothered grunt, until it was dark. Then he got up and dragged himself towards the garden door, grazing himself against the wall as he went. After he had stayed out of doors a few minutes, he came in again and sat down before the stove which was still warm, and as soon as Jeanne and Rosalie had gone to bed, he began to howl. The whole night long he howled, in a pitiful, deplorable way, sometimes ceasing for an hour, only to recommence in a still more doleful tone. A barrel was put outside the house and he was tied up to it, but he howled just the same out of doors as in, and as he was old and almost dying, he was brought back to the kitchen again. It was impossible for Jeanne to sleep, for the whole night she could hear the old dog moaning and scratching as he tried to get used to this new house, which he found so different from his old home. Nothing would quiet him. His eyes were dim, and it seemed as if the knowledge of his infirmity made him keep still while everyone else was awake and downstairs, and at night he wandered restlessly about until daybreak, as if he only dared to move in the darkness which makes all things sightless for the time. It was an intense relief to everyone when one morning he was found dead. Winter wore on, and Jeanne gave way more and more to an insuperable loneliness. It was no longer a keen, heart-rending grief that she felt, but a dull, gloomy melancholy. There was nothing to rouse her from it, no one came to see her, and the road which passed before her door was almost deserted. Sometimes a gig passed by, driven by a red-faced man whose blouse, blown out by the wind, looked like a blue balloon, and sometimes a cart crawled past, or a peasant and his wife could be seen coming from the distance, growing larger and larger as they approached the house, and then diminishing again when they had passed it, till they looked like two insects at the end of the long white line which stretched as far as the eye could reach, rising and falling with the undulation of the earth. When the grass again sprang up, a little girl passed the gate every morning with two thin cows which browsed along the side of the road. And in the evening she returned, taking, as in the morning, one step every ten minutes as she followed the animals. Every night Jeanne dreamt she was again at Les Peuples. She thought she was there with her father and mother and Aunt Lisson, as in the old times. Again she accomplished the old forgotten duties and supported Madame Adelaide as she walked in her avenue and each time she awoke she burst into tears. Paul was continually in her thoughts, and she wondered what he was doing, if he were well, and if he ever thought of her. 
She revolved all these painful thoughts in her mind as she walked along the low-lying roads between the farms, and what was more torture to her than anything else was the fierce jealousy of the woman who had deprived her of her son. It was this hatred alone which restrained her from taking any steps towards finding Paul and trying to see him. She could imagine her son's mistress confronting her at the door and asking, "'What is your business here, madame?' and her self-respect would not permit her to run the risk of such an encounter. In the haughty pride of a chaste and spotless woman, who had never stooped to listen to temptation, she became still more bitter against the base and cowardly actions, to which sensual love will drive a man who is not strong enough to throw off its degrading chains. The whole of humanity seemed to her unclean, as she thought of the obscene secrets of the senses, of the caresses which debase as they are given and received, and of all the mysteries which surround the attraction of the sexes. Another spring and summer passed away, and when the autumn came again with its rainy days, its dull grey skies, its heavy clouds, Jeanne felt so weary of the life she was leading that she determined to make a supreme attempt to regain possession of her poulet. Surely the young man's passion must have cooled by this time, and she wrote him a touching, pitiful letter. My dear child, I am coming to entreat you to return to me. Think how I am left, lonely, aged and ill, the whole year with only a servant. I am living now in a little house by the roadside, and it is very miserable for me. But if you were here, everything would seem different. You are all I have in the world, and I have not seen you for seven years. You will never know how unhappy I have been, and how my every thought was centred in you. You were my life, my soul, my only hope, my only love, and you are away from me. You have forsaken me. Oh, come back, my darling Poulet. Come back and let me hold you in my arms again. Come back to your old mother, who so longs to see you. Jeanne. A few days later came the following reply. My dear mother, I should only be too glad to come and see you, but I have not a penny. Send me some money and I will come. I had myself been thinking of coming to speak to you about a plan which, if carried out, would permit me to do as you desire. I shall never be able to repay the disinterested affection of the woman who has shared all my troubles, but I can at least make a public recognition of her faithful love and devotion. Her behaviour is all you could desire. She is well educated and well read, and you cannot imagine what a comfort she has been to me. I should be a brute if I did not make her some recompense, and I ask your permission to marry her. Then we could all live together in your new house, and you would forgive my follies. I am convinced that you would give your consent at once if you knew her. I assure you she is very ladylike and quiet, and I know you would like her. As for me, I could not live without her. I shall await your reply with every impatience, dear mother. We both send you much love, your son, Vicomte Paul de Lamar. Jeanne was thunderstruck. As she sat with the letter on her knees, she could see so plainly through the designs of this woman who had not once let Paul return to his friends, but had always kept him at her side while she patiently waited until his mother should give in and consent to anything and everything in the irresistible desire of having her son with her again and it was with bitter pain that she thought of how Paul obstinately persisted in preferring this creature to herself. He does not love me, he does not love me, she murmured over and over again. 
He wants to marry her now, she said when Rosalie came in. The servant started. Oh, madame, you surely will not consent to it. Monsieur Paul can't bring that hussy here. All the pride in Jeanne's nature rose in revolt at the thought, and though she was bowed down with grief, she replied decidedly, No, Rosalie, never. But since he won't come here, I will go to him, and we will see which of us two will have the greater influence over him. She wrote to Paul at once, telling him that she was coming to Paris, and would see him anywhere but at the house where he was living with that wretch. Then, while she awaited his reply, she began to make all her preparations for the journey, and Rosalie commenced to pack her mistress's linen and clothes in an old trunk. "'You haven't a single thing to put on,' exclaimed the servant, as she was folding up an old, badly-made dress. "'I won't have you go with such clothes. You'd be a disgrace to everyone, and the Paris ladies would think you were a servant.' Jeanne let her have her own way, and they both went to Gauderville, and chose some green checked stuff, which they left with the dressmaker to be made up. Then they went to see Monsieur Roussel, the lawyer, who went to Paris for a fortnight every year to obtain a few directions, for it was twenty-eight years since Jeanne had been to the capital. He gave them a great deal of advice about crossing the roads and the way to avoid being robbed, saying that the safest plan was to carry only just as much money as was necessary in the pockets and to sew the rest in the lining of the dress. Then he talked for a long time about the restaurants where the charges were moderate, and mentioned two or three to which ladies could go, and he recommended Jeanne to stay at the Hôtel de Normandie, which was near the railway station. He always stayed there himself, and she could say he had sent her. There had been a railway between Paris and Havre for the last six years, but Jeanne had never seen one of these steam engines, of which everyone was talking, and which were revolutionizing the whole country. The days passed on, but still there came no answer from Paul. Every morning for a fortnight, Jeanne had gone along the road to meet the postman, and had asked, in a voice which she could not keep steady, "'You have nothing for me today, Père Malandin?' And the answer was always the same. "'No, nothing yet, ma bonne dame.' Fully persuaded that it was that woman who was preventing Paul from answering, Jeanne determined not to wait any longer, but to start at once. She wanted to take Rosalie with her, but the maid would not go because of increasing the expense of the journey, and she only allowed her mistress to take three hundred francs with her. "'If you want any more money,' she said, "'write to me, and I'll tell the lawyer to forward you some. But if I give you any more now, Monsieur Paul will have it all.' Then one December morning... Denis Lecoq's gig came to take them both to the railway station, for Rosalie was going to accompany her mistress as far as that. When they reached the station, they found out first how much the tickets were, then when the trunk had been labelled and the ticket bought, they stood watching the rails, both too much occupied in wondering what the train would be like to think of the sad cause of this journey. At last a distant whistle made them look round, and they saw a large black machine approaching, which came up with a terrible noise, dragging after it a long chain of little rolling houses. A porter opened the door of one of these little huts, and Jeanne kissed Rosalie and got in. Au revoir, madame. I hope you'll have a pleasant journey and will soon be back again. Au revoir, Rosalie. There was another whistle, and the string of carriages moved slowly off, gradually going faster and faster, till they reached a terrific speed. In Jeanne's compartment there were only two other passengers, who were both asleep, and she sat and watched the fields and farms and villages rush past. She was frightened at the speed at which she was going, and the feeling came over her that she was entering a new phase of life, 
and was being hurried towards a very different world from that in which she had spent her peaceful girlhood and her monotonous life. It was evening when she reached Paris. A porter took her trunk and she followed closely at his heels, sometimes almost running for fear of losing sight of him, and feeling frightened as she was pushed about by the swaying crowd through which she did not know how to pass. "'I was recommended here by Monsieur Roussel,' she hastened to say when she was in the hotel office. The landlady, a big, stolid-looking woman, was sitting at the desk. "'Who is Monsieur Roussel?' she asked. "'The lawyer from Gaudeville, who stays here every year,' replied Jeanne in surprise. "'Very likely he does,' responded the big woman. "'But I don't know him. Do you want a room?' "'Yes, madame.' A waiter shouldered the luggage and led the way upstairs. Jeanne followed, feeling very low-spirited and depressed, and sitting down at a little table, she ordered some soup and the wing of a chicken to be sent up to her, for she had had nothing to eat since daybreak. She thought of how she had passed through this same town on her return from her wedding tour, as she ate her supper by the miserable light of one candle, and of how Julien had then first shown himself in his true character. But then she was young and brave and hopeful. Now she felt old and timid, and the least thing worried and frightened her. When she had finished her supper, she went to the window and watched the crowded street. She would have liked to go out if she had dared, but she thought she should be sure to lose herself, so she went to bed. But she had hardly yet got over the bustle of the journey, and that and the noise and the sensation of being in a strange place kept her awake. The hours passed on, and the noises outside gradually ceased, but still she could not sleep, for she was accustomed to the sound, peaceful sleep of the country, which is so different from the semi-repose of a great city. Here she was conscious of a sort of restlessness all around her. The murmur of voices reached her ears, and every now and then a board creaked, a door shut, or a bell rang. She was just dozing off about two o'clock in the morning, when a woman suddenly began to scream in a neighboring room. Jeanne started up in bed, and next she thought she heard a man laughing. As dawn approached she became more and more anxious to see Paul, and as soon as it was light she got up and dressed. He lived in the Rue du Sauvage, and she meant to follow Rosalie's advice about spending as little as possible and walk there. It was a fine day, though the wind was keen, and there were a great many people hurrying along the pavements. Jeanne walked along the street as quickly as she could. When she reached the other end she was to turn to the right, then to the left. Then she would come to a square where she was to ask again. She could not find the square and a baker, from whom she inquired the way, gave her different directions altogether. She started on again, missed the way, wandered about, and in trying to follow other directions, lost herself entirely. She walked on and on and was just going to hail a cab when she saw the Seine. Then she decided to walk along the quays, and in about an hour she reached the dark, dirty lane called Rue du Sauvage. When she came to the number she was seeking, she was so excited that she stood before the door, unable to move another step. Poulet was there, in that house. Her hands and knees trembled violently, and it was some moments before she could enter and walk along the passage to the doorkeeper's box. "'Will you go and tell Monsieur Paul de Lemar that an old lady friend of his mother's is waiting to see him?' she said, slipping a piece of money into the man's hand. "'He does not live here now, madame,' answered the doorkeeper." She started. "'Oh, where, where is he living now?' she gasped. "'I do not know.' 
She felt stunned, and it was some time before she could speak again. When did he leave? she asked at last, controlling herself by a violent effort. The man was quite ready to tell her all he knew. About a fortnight ago, he replied. They just walked out of the house one evening and didn't come back. They owed all over the neighborhood, so you may guess they didn't leave an address. Tongues of flame were dancing before Jeanne's eyes, as if a gun were being fired off close to her face. But she wanted to find Poulet, and that kept her up and made her stand opposite the doorkeeper, as if she were calmly thinking. Then he did not say anything when he left? No, nothing at all. They went away to get out of paying their debts. But he will have to send for his letters. He'll send a good many times before he gets them, then. Besides, they didn't have ten in a twelve-month, though I took them up one two days before they left. That must have been the one she sent. Listen, she said hastily, I am his mother, and I have come to look for him. Here are ten francs for yourself. If you hear anything from or about him, let me know at once, at the Hôtel de Normandie, Rue de Havre, and you shall be well paid for your trouble. You may depend upon me, madame, answered the doorkeeper, and Jeanne went away. She hastened along the streets as if she were bent on an important mission, but she was not looking or caring whither she was going. She walked close to the walls, pushed and buffeted by errand boys and porters, crossed the roads regardless of the vehicles and the shouts of the drivers, stumbled against the curbstones which she did not see, and hurried on and on, unconscious of everything and every one. At last she found herself in some gardens, and feeling too weak to walk any further, she dropped on a seat. She sat there a long while, apparently unaware that the tears were running down her cheeks, and that passers-by stopped to look at her. At last the bitter cold made her rise to go, but her legs would hardly carry her, so weak and exhausted was she. She would have liked some soup, but she dared not go into a restaurant, for she knew people could see she was in trouble, and it made her feel timid and ashamed. When she passed an eating place she would stop a moment at the door, look inside, and see all the people sitting at the tables eating, and then go on again, saying to herself, I will go into the next one. But when she came to the next her courage always failed her again. In the end she went into a baker's shop and bought a little crescent-shaped roll, which she ate as she went along. She was very thirsty, but she did not know where to get anything to drink, so she went without. She passed under an arch and found herself in some more gardens with arcades running all round them, and she recognized the Palais Royal. Her walk in the sun had made her warm again, so she sat down for another hour or two. A crowd of people flowed into the gardens, an elegant crowd composed of beautiful women and wealthy men, who only lived for dress and pleasure, and who chatted and smiled and bowed as they sauntered along. Feeling ill at ease amidst this brilliant throng, Jeanne rose to go away, but suddenly the thought struck her that perhaps she might meet Paul here, and she began to walk from end to end of the gardens, with hasty, furtive steps, carefully scanning every face she met. Soon she saw that people turned to look and laugh at her, and she hurried away, thinking it was her odd appearance and her green-checked dress, which Rosalie had chosen and had made up, that attracted everyone's attention and smiles. She hardly dared ask her way, but she did at last venture, and when she had reached her hotel, she passed the rest of the day sitting on a chair at the foot of the bed. In the evening she dined off some soup and a little meat, 
like the day before, and then undressed and went to bed, performing all the duties of her toilet quite mechanically from sheer habit. The next morning she went to the police office to see if she could get any help there towards the discovery of her son's whereabouts. They told her they could not promise her anything, but that they would attend to the matter. After she had left the police office, she wandered about the streets in the hopes of meeting her child, and she felt more friendless and forsaken among the busy crowds than she did in the midst of the lovely fields. When she returned to the hotel in the evening, she was told that a man from Monsieur Paul had asked for her and was coming again the next day. All the blood in her body seemed to suddenly rush to her heart, and she could not close her eyes all night. Perhaps it was Paul himself. Yes, it must be so, although his appearance did not tally with the description the hotel people had given of the man who had called. And when, about nine o'clock in the morning, there came a knock at the door, she cried, Come in! expecting her son to rush into her arms held open to receive him. But it was a stranger who entered, a stranger who began to apologize for disturbing her and to explain that he had come about some money Paul owed him. As he spoke, she felt herself beginning to cry, and she tried to hide her tears from the man by wiping them away with the end of her finger as soon as they reached the corners of her eyes. The man had heard of her arrival from the concierge at the Rue du Sauvage, and as he could not find Paul, he had come to his mother. He held out a paper which Jeanne mechanically took, she saw ninety francs written on it, and she drew out the money and paid the man. She did not go out at all that day, and the next morning more creditors appeared. She gave them all the money she had left except twenty francs, and wrote and told Rosalie how she was placed. Until her servant's answer came, she passed the days in wandering aimlessly about the streets. She did not know what to do or how to kill the long, miserable hours. There was no one who knew of her troubles, or to whom she could go for sympathy, and her one desire was to get away from this city and to return to her little house beside the lonely road, where, a few days before, she had felt she could not bear to live because it was so dull and lonely. Now she was sure she could live nowhere else but in that little home, where all her mournful habits had taken root. At last, one evening, she found a letter from Rosalie, awaiting her with two hundred francs enclosed. "'Come back as soon as possible, Madame Jeanne,' wrote the maid, "'for I shall send you nothing more. As for Monsieur Paul, I will go and fetch him myself the next time we hear anything from him. With best respects, your servant, Rosalie.' And Jeanne started back to Batteville one bitterly cold, snowy morning. End of chapter 13